Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. On the Naked Astronomy podcast this month, a system of six exoplanets will find out what's so special about Kepler-11. The six planets orbiting Kepler-11 have periods, all of them, between 10 days and 120 days. So the really amazing thing is how closely packed these planets are to one another. Not only had we never seen anything like this before, we didn't even expect the planets could be this close packed. And Louise Ogden reports on the James Webb Space Telescope, the scientific successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. Plus, news of the runaway star spotted by the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, a view of the whole sun, and what a galaxy spotted at a redshift of 10 can tell us about star formation in the early universe. I'm Ben Valsler from The Naked Scientists, and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC and Cambridge University's 800th anniversary team, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. As always, I'm joined by Carolyn Crawford, Andrew Ponson and Dominic Ford. So let's start with a roundup of this month's space science news. Andrew, what do you have for us? Well, as you were just saying, the WISE survey, that's the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, has seen a huge wave in the interstellar gas of our galaxy caused by a massive star shooting through that gas. Now, we've discussed the survey before. It's uh, looking over the entire sky, looking for interesting features in the infrared wave bands. And what it's actually seen is what we call a bow shock in front of the star Zeta of Fuci. It's uh, rather like the wave that's created in front and around a speeding boat as it, as it goes through the water. But this is a star that's travelling at something like 25 kilometres per second through uh, its surrounding gas. Now, the star itself is something like 500 light years away, so that's not quite a next door neighbour, but it's uh, perhaps on the next street. It's, it's, it's pretty close. Um, and this 25 kilometres per second might sound very fast, but we have actually seen runaway stars with much larger speeds. Uh, something up to 100 kilometres per second is not totally unusual, and we even see things with speeds of up to several hundred kilometres per second going so fast that they could actually escape our galaxy entirely uh, given enough time. So why is this actually interesting? Well, runaway stars in general, like this one, may actually be important to understand to understand the, the history of the entire universe because they are able, when travelling at such large speeds, to escape their nursery, the, the place that they were born, which was a very dense cloud of gas. And because they escape that very dense cloud, their light gets out into the wider universe more easily. So it is important for us to understand uh, how and why these runaway stars are actually formed and how they then behave if we want to understand how light gets out into the universe, which of course is important for, for things like understanding star formation in general, like at Redshift 10, as we'll be hearing about later on. So we can actually use them as a probe to find out more about a nursery region that we may not necessarily be able to see? In a sense, yes. I mean, I think the, the, the physics of how they actually get out of that nursery region is so poorly understood at the moment that uh, it's, it's, it's hard to say that we're really learning about the nursery. It's more sort of the other way around. But ultimately, uh, these kind of studies will tell us more about the way that stars form. Thank you, Andrew. Dominic, staying with stars, but one that we're a lot more familiar with, Stereo has given us a new image of the sun. Yes, that's right. The sun's been making quite a few headlines this month, actually. You may recall a couple of weeks ago we had news stories about a massive explosion on the surface of the sun called an X-class flare, and there were hopes that that would trigger northern and southern lights. I think in the event the show was a bit of a disappointment, but nonetheless that was the most powerful explosion on the surface of the sun for four years. 
and there are signs that there might be more such events in the next few weeks. But as you say, the really exciting news has been that the Stereo spacecraft is allowing us for the first time to view the whole surface of the Sun at once. So what does that mean? Well, if we look at the Sun from the Earth, we only see half of its surface. We only see the side that's turned towards us. And the Sun rotates every 25 days on its axis. So if you want to follow a sunspot group, you can only see it for 12 and a half days at a time before it goes behind the Sun. And that's a real problem if you want to understand the complex magnetic processes which are seeding and triggering these sunspot groups to evolve because you can't see them through their whole lifespan. So the stereo spacecraft gets around that by having two observatories which are in an orbit around the Sun very similar to the Earth's, but one is going slightly faster than the Earth and the other slightly slower than the Earth, so that it lags behind the Earth while the other one gets ahead of the Earth. Um, we've just, four years after launch, these were launched in 2006, got to a point where one is 90 degrees ahead of the Earth and the other is 90 degrees behind the Earth. So they're 180 degrees apart, and that means each one sees a different hemisphere of the Sun. And so we can trace sunspot groups all the time that they're rotating around the Sun's surface. And in fact, because we have other solar observatories based close to the Earth, such as SOHO, as these two spacecraft move around the back of the Sun, we're going to have a continuous view of the Sun's surface for the next eight years. So this should be a really fantastic opportunity to understand how sunspot groups evolve. And obviously the scientists will be hoping that the Sun livens up a bit more to have more of these events that we can study in the next few years. And I assume it's also going to give us much more advanced notice of uh, large events happening if we can see them from the back of the Sun. Yes, certainly if a large sunspot group begins to seed on the far side of the sun, then that gives us much more notice that these might come round to the front side and truck out a coronal mass ejection towards the Earth and potentially trigger uh, magnetic storms in the Earth's atmosphere. And from a less scientific but more aesthetic point of view, Stereo has also given us some beautiful 3D images of the sun's surface. That's right, because we can view these coronal mass ejections from two different viewpoints, we get stereo vision rather like the vision that you get from having two eyes. You can really place where the gas is in a three-dimensional map of the solar system. So it's not just aesthetics. Actually, having that 3D image is quite useful for learning about the sun. Certainly, yes. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Carolyn, what have you seen for us this month? Well, I want to mention the flypast of Comet Temple that happened in mid-February. And I do love this mission because it's the Stardust space probe flying past Comet Temple 1 at about 10 kilometres per second. And there are a couple of interesting things about this mission. One is the actual spacecraft itself is a recycled mission. This probe was launched in 1999 and originally it went to visit another comet, Comet Wild, and captured dust particles that were then sent in a capsule to return to Earth in 2007. But there was still enough fuel in its tanks that they redirected it then to go and intercept Collet Temple 1. And it's not just that the spacecraft is recycled. I think even the camera on Stardust is a spare from one of the Voyager missions. And it's flying to Comet Temple 1. And again, if that comet sounds familiar... Again, this is a second visit to this comet because it's the one that NASA smashed a small projectile into in July 2005. The idea being that the mission was called Deep Impact. It throws up on collision this huge cloud of debris and ejector. The mission could then study Deep Impact, would then study the, the light from this plume and analyse the composition of the contents and see what kind of crater was made by the impact. Now, in practice, even though they were able to study the ejector, there was so much of it thrown out that they couldn't get a good look at the effect they had on the surface. So let's fast forward now to this recent mission. It's a second fly past of the same comet. So first of all, they can look at the scar left from this original deep impact. And it's quite surprising that it's a lot less dramatic, I think, than a lot of us had hoped. And it's quite sobering how little an impact smashing this projectile into this comet has been, because the comet's just a dirty snowball. It's only about 14 kilometres wide. It's not that big a structure. And if you look at the exact location, you can see well-defined crater rims, but there's no pit underneath them. It's all been filled in, suggesting that all the material that was ejected has then fallen back down to the surface of the comet and burying a lot of the crater. 
So the other thing, of course, is that it's six years since we last visited this comet. And in the intervening time, it's gone twice past the sun. And every time the comet goes near the sun, it's shedding material. The, the comet's heating up. It's vaporizing material from the surface. And so the initial look has concentrated looking at the area where the deep impact projectile impacted on the comet. There's going to be a lot of work doing more or less spot the difference between images of the comet from the two missions, and particularly looking for whether it's more sort of gentle surface erosion that happens every time the cometary nucleus goes past the sun, or whether you've got much more deep cracks and fissures that break up and, and open up the interior of the comet to space. So they're going to learn a lot about what happens to a comet in these passages around the sun. Thank you, Carolyn. Andrew, if we could come back to you. Yeah, well, uh, I want to pick up something that actually, uh, I have to admit, came out uh, last month from the uh, American Astronomical Society meeting. And we discussed some results from from that, that meeting. We didn't have time to cover everything that came out. And this caught my eye as well, that um, people have found, uh, they've, they've measured a new mass for the black hole that sits at the centre of the galaxy M87. And the mass that they've derived is 7 billion times the mass of our own sun. So even by the standards of supermassive black holes that we know do sit at the centre of galaxies, that, that's pretty large. The way they do that is they're using the Gemini telescope to watch how stars are moving near the centre of that M87 galaxy. And Carl Gebhardt and, and his collaborators at the University of Texas have been using the power of that very large telescope to watch stars even closer to the centre than anyone's ever managed before. And the reason that that's important is because as you get closer and closer to the centre, and therefore closer and closer to what we think is, is a black hole in the centre, you expect the velocity of the stars that you're measuring to keep going up if they really are caused by the gravitational tug of a, of a black hole. But to do that experiment, you need very accurate optics because uh, you're, you're trying to look in a very small region and what you mustn't do is sort of smear all the stars together. If you have slight imperfections in your telescope, they get smeared together and you get confused about what the, the true speeds of the, the different stars at different distances really is. So they've been using the, the very powerful Gemini telescope, which has what we call an adaptive optics system to prevent this smearing as much as possible. And the new data that they found uh, gets the stars up to a speed of 500 kilometres per second at about 100 light years from uh, what we think is this black hole. And, and it's that that leads them to their estimate of 7 billion times the mass of the sun. And, and more broadly, it's important to understand the black holes that sit at the centre of galaxies. This is obviously a small contribution to that. Um, but we do think that they've uh, evolved alongside galaxies and probably had quite a large impact on the way that their host galaxies have evolved. So uh, as well as being extremely technically impressive, this is uh, a contribution to an important field. Obviously, we have a black hole at the centre of our own galaxy as well. How does this compare to M87? Well, compared against M87, both the black hole in our galaxy and our galaxy itself are thought to be much smaller than the black hole in M87 and, and M87 itself. And in fact, one of the things we'd like to really understand is why it is that bigger galaxies seem to have bigger black holes. It's not actually at all obvious how that should come about. OK, well, thank you very much. Dominic, I, I mentioned this in the introduction, but the Hubble Space Telescope has spotted a galaxy with a redshift of 10. Now, we've talked about redshift before, so I know that that's very big. But what does that really mean in, in real terms? That's right. This was a paper which appeared in Nature back in late January, and it's the discovery of the most distant galaxy ever observed. And this was found using the Wide Field Camera 3 on the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, this is a pretty small galaxy. It's about one hundredth of the size of the Milky Way, and it's quite blue-coloured. It's actively forming stars, as you would expect for a galaxy in the very early universe. But what's interesting is, because it's at a tremendous distance of 13.2 billion light-years, we're seeing it as it was only 600 million years after the Big Bang. And this is a really interesting time in the history of the universe, when we think the first galaxies were forming and the first stars were forming within those galaxies. 
Now, if we compare this with previous claims to discover very distant galaxies, the previous record holder was at a distance of 13.15 billion light years, so seen as it was 650 million light years after the Big Bang. So this is a step of 50 million years closer to the beginning of the universe. And that might not sound like a tremendously big step, but what's really fascinating is that this galaxy is forming stars at a rate of only about a tenth of the star formation rate of the galaxies found previously. And that suggests that we're really getting tantalisingly close to the epoch where these galaxies were first starting to form stars. And that suggests that looking to the future, as we find more and more distant galaxies, we're going to be probing a very interesting epoch. Now, this story is, I think, the beginning of a fascinating subject rather than the end. This is only the discovery of one object. Um, As we often find ourselves saying on this podcast, it would be nice to have a few more. But there are a number of telescopes coming online in the next few years, which, together with the Hubble Space Telescope, I think will discover a lot of these objects. We're going to hear a lot more about this. And these telescopes would include LOFAR, a radio telescope based in Holland, with antennas spread across Europe, and a similar telescope in Australia, the Murchison Widefield Array. And in terms of getting optical images of these galaxies, as well as the Hubble Space Telescope, obviously, we can probably look forward to seeing some really fantastic images from the James Webb Space Telescope when it is launched in about 2015, and then from the European Extremely Large Telescope in 8 to 10 years' time. And we'll be hearing a bit more about the James Webb Space Telescope a bit later on in the show. But now, we asked for your help in coming up with a name for our high-speed rundown of space science facts and figures. The votes are now in, and we can announce that your third choice was Astro Facts, suggested by Paul Baker. Joint second was Shooting Stats, suggested by Julie Grise and Mark Bobo's Cosmic Quickie. Thank you for that one, Mark. The clear winner, though, and from here on, this bit of the show will be known as Fact Impact. So thank you very much to Brian Bithell for suggesting that name and to everybody that voted to make that decision. So now, the very first properly named Fact Impact, everything you need to know about the Milky Way. All the stars you can see at night with the unaided eye lie in our home, the Milky Way. In total, the galaxy contains around 400 billion stars. Many of them suns like our own, surrounded by their own planetary systems. The Milky Way is shaped like two fried eggs back to back. A large central bulge is surrounded by a flat disk of stars measuring some 120,000 light years across. But only a few thousand light years thick. The central bulge of stars is about 12,000 light years in diameter. It consists of a population of stars which is much older than those in the disk. And is substantially elongated, making the Milky Way a barred spiral galaxy. The disk contains the spiral arms, which appear prominent as they contain hot, luminous stars. They're sites of active star formation and are lined with glowing gas nebulae and young blue star clusters. Where stars have formed in groups, all originally having collapsed from the same dense molecular cloud. The galaxy has four spiral arms, known as the Perseus, Scutum Crux, Carina and Sagittarius and Norma and Cygnus arms. The Sun lies halfway out from the centre to the edge of the stellar disk. And is located in the Orion arm, a small outer spur of the Cygnus arm. All the stars in the disk, including the Sun, are rotating in near-circular orbits. The Sun itself is orbiting at a speed of around 220 kilometres per second, moving in the direction of the star known as Vega. Even at that speed, it takes us around 250 million years to travel once around the centre of the galaxy. Detailed study of the speeds of stars in the rotating disk reveals that the mass of the galaxy is around 800,000 million times the mass of the Sun. But over 90% of that mass is in the form of an invisible giant halo of dark matter, which only reveals itself by its gravitational pull on the visible matter. Its mass is so great that it is the gravity of the dark matter rather than all the stars that hold the galaxy together. The centre of the Milky Way lies in the direction of the constellation of Sagittarius and is some 30,000 light-years away from us. It's marked by an intense radio feature called Sagittarius A-star, which is itself surrounded by a cluster of hot young stars. Many of these stars are moving very fast in tight orbits around a mass 
some 4 million times that of the Sun. Which must be contained within a volume less than the size of our solar system. So that's the evidence that the core of our galaxy hosts a supermassive black hole. Which remains dormant, not actively accreting any matter at the moment. The Milky Way is not alone in space. Along with its sister galaxy Andromeda and the Triangulum Galaxy, it's part of the local group, which is a collection of around 25 to 30 galaxies spread over a region some 10 million light-years across. Which in turn is at the outskirts of the Virgo supercluster of galaxies. Two of the small galaxies in orbit around the Milky Way can be seen in the southern hemisphere night sky. They're known as the Magellanic Clouds and they lie 160,000 and 200,000 light-years away. And are slowly being distorted and pulled apart by the tidal forces from the Milky Way's gravity. A new satellite galaxy was only discovered in 1994 and it's known as the Sagittarius Dwarf Elliptical Galaxy. It moves in a polar orbit very close to the Milky Way but it's currently on the opposite side of the galactic centre from our own solar system. And it's being shredded by the galaxy's gravitational pull shedding a long stream of stars in its wake. The close proximity of such satellite galaxies as the Magellanic Clouds and the Sagittarius Dwarf Elliptical Galaxy have in return affected the Milky Way. Their tidal gravitational forces have slightly warped the disk of the Milky Way, so it's no longer completely flat. The Milky Way is on a collision course with its near neighbour, the Andromeda Galaxy. They are heading towards each other at a rate of about 500,000 kilometres an hour. So the two galaxies are expected to begin a process of merging within a few billion years. You'll find more fact impact on our site at thenakedscientists.com slash astronomy. If there's a topic that you would like to get the high-speed lowdown on, then do get in touch, astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. We'll explore the Kepler-11 solar system shortly, but first, Dominic, could you help with this question from Paul Young? He says, if we are to make extended human trips into space, one idea to ensure that humans survive the zero-gravity conditions was to have a spaceship that revolves, and that would create artificial gravity. But he says he thought gravity was related to mass and not to whether it's spinning or not. So how would a rotating ship simulate gravity? Yes, well, this was an idea, of course, investigated by Arthur C. Clarke in the film 2001, the idea that you might have a ring-shaped space station which you set rotating. And because every part of that ring is having to accelerate to turn a corner to carry on moving around in a circle rather than flying off in a straight line, that means that every part of the ring is having to accelerate and that acceleration is causing a centrifugal force which is rather like gravity and pushes the astronauts down onto the surface of the ring. Now, this is actually a principle rather like driving a car around a corner, which you've probably experienced. You feel like you're being flung outwards. There's a centrifugal force pushing you outwards. So these centrifugal forces do produce an effect which is very similar to gravity. And in fact, it's a fundamental principle of physics that you can't distinguish a centrifugal force from gravity itself. It is called the principle of equivalence and it's a thought experiment that Einstein did when he was driving the theory of general relativity. So this could be really useful in space because we know that astronauts suffer from weakening bones and weakening muscles because they're not having to counteract the force of gravity while they're weightless in space. But the reason why I think we haven't seen this in use with spacecraft to date is the cost because you need to have an awful lot of material to build a spacecraft in a ring shape and it costs a tremendous amount of money to launch material into space and so you generally want to go with the lowest possible weight that will do your task. There was a proposal to have a cabin on the International Space Station that they were going to call the centrifuge accommodation model where the astronauts would be able to sleep um, in a spinning environment that would simulate gravity. Uh, That was cut I think because of the cost But we have seen a white paper within the last month or so published within NASA for a spacecraft called Nautilus X, which would have an inflatable ring. So this would be inflatable to get down the mass of this structure. And if that's accepted and funding appears, then that might fly in test flights in 2020. So we might yet see rotating ring spaceships within the next 10, 20 years. 
At the moment, uh, astronauts on the International Space Station use uh, sort of bungee cords, don't they? They they use something to simulate gravity by pulling them down onto, say, a treadmill so that they can run with that down pull still on their muscles. But that can't be as good as actually having a force that acts entirely over your body like gravity or centrifugal force would. Yes, that certainly gets rid of some of the inconvenience of flying around the room when you don't want to when you're sleeping for example. But the problem is it's not pulling your blood to your feet. Your blood is still feeling weightless and that means that your heart is having to do less work than it would have to do on on the earth and then those muscles weaken. Thank you very much. Carolyn, if we could come to you with a question from Colin Strand. This is sort of still looking at rotation and centrifugal forces and so on, but on a very different scale. He wants to know what it is that stops a galaxy that's not rotating from just collapsing into its centre. Yes, well, when we look at spiral galaxies, these are the ones that are rotating. And just like Dominic was describing, it's the circular motion that can... That, provides a centrifugal force which resists the collapse against gravity and holds them up in place. But the vast majority of galaxies are not spiral galaxies. They're elliptical galaxies, these kind of ball-shaped galaxies that do not rotate. But just because they have no sort of large-scale coherent motion, it doesn't mean that the stars are static. And in fact, all those stars are moving around. They're buzzing around the galaxy on their own individual orbits, and it's just not an organised motion. So there's plenty of energy there, there's plenty of motion there, and that can resist the gravitational collapse. Because whether something collapses under gravity or not, look, you have to look at this balance of how close matter is, how close particles, if you like here, the stars are together. Because obviously, if you're closer to something, the stronger the gravity is, and how fast they're moving. And the more slowly objects are moving, there's more time and opportunity to notice and respond to the gravitational field of the neighbours and begin that collapse process. But if things are buzzing around very fast, they don't have time to notice and move according to that gravitational field. And so this continual motion of the stars is enough energy to stop them from gravitational collapse. And this is just the same basic principle throughout a whole lot of astrophysics. It's why if you have a gas cloud of a given size, whether it eventually collapses under gravity or not, there are gas clouds throughout the universe that haven't collapsed over the last 13 billion years. Why not? It's this balance of you know how much thermal energy the particles have in the cloud versus their, the density of the cloud and how close they are together. So you're looking at the energy in the individual particles and how strong the self-gravity is. And a lot of these clouds are in the balance where there's too much energy because they're too hot or they're too diffuse and so they don't collapse. And they only ever collapse to form structures like stars, either if the cloud becomes denser or it becomes colder. And so if things are moving, they don't necessarily respond to the gravity very strongly. Thank you, Carolyn, and we will answer more of your questions later on in the show. But now, NASA describes Kepler as their first mission capable of finding Earth-sized planets around other stars, and it seems to be doing a very good job. In the journal Nature earlier this month, NASA scientists announced the discovery of a unique system of six planets orbiting very close to their parent star, Kepler-11. I spoke to Dr Jack Lissauer. The findings that we announced in Nature are related to just an amazing new planetary system, which has six planets that we know of. We've seen all six of these planets transit across their star, and we've seen that from the Kepler spacecraft, which monitors the stellar brightness. And we know there are six planets because we have six patterns of dimmings as these planets block a portion of their starlight. These planets are all medium size. They range from about twice the radius of Earth to about four and a half times, which is a little larger than the planets Uranus and Neptune. So they're not really giant planets like Jupiter and Saturn, and the majority of exoplanets known, but they're not terrestrial planets either. They're a lot bigger than our Earth. Now, all six of these orbit very close to the same plane, so this is a very flat planetary system. Also, all six of these orbit fairly close to their star, 
And that's one of the really amazing things about it. Five of the six are closer to their star than any of the planets is to our sun. And even the outer one that we've seen would lie between the orbits of Mercury and Venus, were it in our own solar system. We know, in addition, a fair amount about these planets. We know the sizes of all six, and we have good estimates of the masses of the inner five because they exert a measurable amount of gravitational pull on one another. The way we measure this is by the times at which the transits occur. If you have a single planet orbiting a star, if it transited, in other words, if we were in the right plane to view it crossing the face of its star, those transits would be strictly periodic, like clockwork. But because these planets tug on one another, they slow each other down, they speed each other up, and from the amounts of those changes in the times of transits, by something like 10 or 20 minutes compared to orbital periods, which range between 10 days and 47 days for the inner five planets, we're able to deduce the masses of these planets. They all turn out to be fairly low in density for their masses. None of them are big rocks. And at least three of the five have substantial atmospheres of hydrogen and helium. There's just no other way to explain how they could be so large but have such little mass, except for the inner two, which might have a lot of water, although it wouldn't be the liquid water form that we're used to on Earth. It would be a high-pressure fluid or other things that astronomers call ices like methane and ammonia. Again, not in solid form, but in some fluid form. Kepler itself is looking at one four hundredth of the sky, I believe? That's right. So it's a big field of view compared to other telescopes that are comparable in size. The Hubble Space Telescope has a field of view only about one ten-thousandth as large. But still, it's a small fraction of our sky. And actually teasing apart the information that you need to work out, especially with something as as unique and interesting as a six-planet system, that must be a, a very difficult mathematical jigsaw to actually work out what the little dips in light as each planet transits, what that actually means. Well, you're right. With six planets, it's fairly complicated. But the basic mathematics is simple. It's what Isaac Newton discovered back in the 17th century. Still, in order to fit all the times that we observe the transits with one another, you need fairly sophisticated computers. I mentioned this is a, a unique discovery. Most exoplanets that we've found, and I'm finding it very hard to actually keep up to date with how many we've found, um, most of them seem to be on their own around their parent star. What's so special about six planets? Do we expect to see these clusters out there? Well, six planets around the star is something very unusual for what's been detected. There is one other system with six planets and possibly one other one that has been found by the radial velocity or Doppler method. But that's a very different system. It includes one body with a period of less than a week and another one with a period of longer than five years. So they're quite spread out, whereas the six planets orbiting Kepler-11 have periods, all of them, between 10 days and 120 days. So the really amazing thing is how closely packed these planets are to one another. And not only 
had we never seen anything like this before, we didn't even expect the planets could be this close packed, or at least that they could form this closely packed. Planetary formation is often described as being quite a violent process. You would you would anticipate that this many planets forming so close together, they're going to bang into each other, they're going to be thrown out of orbit. But it seems that because they're all in a very level plane, this must have actually been quite a peaceful construction of these planets. Well, you're right. There is this contradiction. And the only way it seems to work out is if during the later phases of their growth or of their migration to the positions they're in, because they could have well have grown farther from the star and then gradually migrated inwards, there must have been something to take away the energy, to damp down their eccentricities and inclinations. This could have been small, solid bodies, things like the asteroids that we have in our solar system between Mars and Jupiter, except there would need to be a lot of them, or it could have been gas, gas that is part of disks around young stars out of which planets form. And I'm saying the gas in this case because the gas is almost 100 times as massive as the dust from which the cores of giant planets as well as terrestrial planets are made. Is there anything special about this particular star, Kepler-11, that could indicate why it's got such an interesting system around it? Well, there's nothing really special about this star. It's actually a star very much like our sun, almost the same mass, almost the same temperature. It seems like it may be a little older than the sun. It seems like it may be in a slightly different population of stars, formed earlier in what's called the thick disk. So it's moving very rapidly relative to the sun by almost 60 kilometers per second. Because of this motion, there's a non-trivial difference between the periods orbital periods of the planets that we measure, and the actual periods. And that difference, although it's well under a percent, is still larger than our uncertainty in the measured periods. One thing that we've mentioned before in Naked Astronomy as being a subject that astronomers are trying to answer, a question they're trying to answer is, is our solar system normal? Is there anything we can learn from the Kepler-11 system that helps to tell us whether we are special and unique or whether, in fact, our models of how planetary systems form are correct or not? Well, it's a very interesting and complicated question because when we look out at other planetary systems, we find an amazing diversity. And we don't even know if there is something that could be referred to as a normal type of planetary system, or whether it's just a vast variety. But Kepler is designed to answer those questions, especially the question of how many planets are out there that are similar to Earth, about the same size, about the same distance from their star, that they could host life. And what Kepler-11 tells us about that is because there are ways to have, form planetary systems with planetary orbits so close to one another, it might be possible to have systems with multiple nested Earth-like planets, much closer to one another than Earth is to Venus or Mars, and therefore so that there may be three or even four such planets in the habitable zone where life, which requires liquid water, as all life on Earth does, is able to flourish. So what will be the next stage 
both for you in your work and for Kepler in general. I, it's running until the end of 2012, is that right? The Kepler mission is... Nominal mission goes through late 2012, but the spacecraft is performing well, and we are hoping that there's an extended mission, and that will allow us to do a variety of additional science. It will allow us to detect Earth analogs around far more stars, and it will allow us to get much more information on the planets we've already detected, such as those around Kepler-11. By that, I mean we'll be able to have much better estimates of their masses because we'll have more of these transit time variations, we might be able to detect additional planets beyond the six we've seen so far, either because they transit but are so small we need to add up a lot of transits in order to see them, or if they orbit near transiting planets but have orbital planes that are somewhat tilted and don't transit as seen from the solar system, we still could detect them because they may perturb the times of transits of those planets we do detect. But for all that type of information, we need more data. And we're hoping that our little spacecraft will continue to operate for many years beyond the nominal end of mission date, late 2012. Jack Lissauer on the future of the Kepler mission. Andrew, this seems to be a recurring topic, but can I take you back to something we discussed last month, and that's the subject of Hawking radiation. We've had an email from Benjamin Maine from Nina in Wisconsin, and he suggested that Hawking radiation causes black holes to evaporate because they must pay the debt that results from the spontaneous creation of virtual particles. It's a very eloquent email and very nicely written, but a bit too long for me to read out here, so I will put it online at thenakedscientists.com slash astronomy for people to read in full. Andrew, do we need to think more about energy and debt when we're considering Hawking radiation rather than just matter? Yeah, well, um, as Benjamin says in his full email, um, this is an incredibly complex topic. And uh, he's trying to haul me up on some of the stuff that I said in the previous podcast. Uh, I think I've got to admit that certainly what I said in the previous podcast was incomplete. I don't think it is quite as wrong as he's trying to make out, but it was certainly incomplete. Um, I chose to focus on a, a speculative aspect on whether matter really should be preferentially emitted from a black hole over antimatter. And Ben Valsler will witness that uh, I, uh, I worried about exactly which particular different topics we could have spoken about as soon as we stopped recording, because this is actually a, a huge topic. Um, I do suspect we could do an entire podcast just discussing that one we, day. We absolutely could. And um, and last week, I was at a conference where there were some international experts on gravity, and uh, we were all getting confused over this. I mean, it's it's simply something that, that nobody understands in full. However, uh, going back to Benjamin Main's uh, email, it, it is in fact a uh, uh, true that I, I did ignore a key part of, of why black holes shrink. And that's the fact that the particles that are being created near the black hole are what we call off-shell. Now, this, is, this becomes very technical very quickly, but one way you can think about it is that these particles being created are simply not carrying energy in the way that we normally think of particles carrying energy. That is a key part of, of why one of these particles can escape and, in fact, uh, steal energy from uh, the other particle that, that ends up uh, falling into the black hole. And this effect is only possible in quantum theories. It is a purely quantum effect. You cannot get it from uh, what we call classical theories, which tend to be easier to think about. Um, but no, I mean, it, it is right that that is key to actually extracting the mass from the black hole. 
Well, thank you very much, Andrew. And I think we probably should draw a line under the subject of Hawking radiation on this podcast for now. Of course, if you want to discuss other aspects that we don't have time to hear, or even the more speculative ideas, or if you have any speculation yourself, you can join us online at thenakedscientist.com slash forum, where there's an active community of people discussing all sorts of different topics, including, no doubt, this sort of space science. Now, Dominic, if we could come back to you, Isaac Lee has got in touch to say that he learned about extreme forms of bacteria living in an absence of sunlight in caves with sulfuric acid. And he was wondering, could that sort of life, what we call extremophile bacteria, could that sort of thing survive on Mars? Well, that's a fascinating question. And I think if there's one thing we've really learned in astrobiology in the last few years, it's that it's very risky to rule out any environment as not being able to support life. I think in the past people tended to be quite prescriptive about what conditions you need for life to be possible. But time and again, we've discovered these extremophile bacteria that can live in really bizarre and surprising environments, like the acid environments which Isaac mentions. We've also found bacteria that can live in hot springs at temperatures of 90 degrees centigrade or on the bottom of the ocean in environments where there's no sunlight that could give these ecosystems energy. Now, having said all of that, the surface of Mars is a very harsh environment, even by the standards of the places where we found extreme fire bacteria on Earth. It's bathed in ultraviolet radiation from the sun because Mars' atmosphere is so thin and doesn't have any ozone layer to absorb that ultraviolet radiation. And it's also bombarded by the solar wind because Mars has no magnetic field like the Earth to deflect the flow of charged particles from the Sun. So there have been estimates in the past couple of years that a DNA-based life form would probably need to live more than 7 metres below the surface in order to be protected from that radiation so that the DNA molecules weren't themselves broken apart by those radiation particles. And of course we've also landed probes on the surface of Mars and we've done surface chemistry experiments and those... I think most people would agree, have shown that there isn't life on Mars. There are, of course, a few doubters, but I think if you read the papers written by the doubters, they tend to focus on a few single anomalous results, which were probably caused by instrumentation issues, and tend to ignore the broader context of many more results which have shown that there is no evidence of life on the surface. Now, having said all of that, Mars was probably a much more hospitable planet in the past. We think there was liquid water on the surface, we think it had a thicker atmosphere, and we think it may have had a magnetic field which would have deflected the solar wind. And it is possible that life might have been present on Mars in the past, and it might still survive beneath the surface, where it's probably warmer and there might be liquid water still present today. The problem, of course, is burrowing down beneath the surface of Mars to find it. And that was something which the ill-fated Beagle 2 probe wanted to do. Unfortunately, of course, Beagle 2 never returned any data and almost certainly crashed on landing. But I think this is going to be a question which will keep people fascinated for many years to come because it's a very difficult problem to dig a deep hole on the surface of Mars and there could be life forms down there. Well, thank you very much, Dominic, and thank you, Isaac, for your question. If anyone else has any questions or comments for us, then you can get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. Expand your mind and Neptune in. Naked Astronomy, the stellar space science show. For more episodes of this programme, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. This is Naked Astronomy, the space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. The James Webb Space Telescope, planned for launch in 2014 or 15, will be NASA's scientific successor to Hubble. With a larger mirror and infrared observing capabilities, it is hoped that the James Webb will be able to image and study the objects that Hubble wasn't able to. Louise Ogden spoke to Nobel laureate John C. Mather, the project scientist for the James Webb Telescope, about its projected capabilities. In 2014, the James Webb Space Telescope will be launched. The successor to the Hubble Space Telescope, the James Webb will host the largest mirror ever sent into space. Named after an influential NASA administrator, the James Webb is all about looking further. Hubble has brought us some of the most spectacular images of our universe – 
but it frustratingly lacked the infrared capabilities required to look at extremely redshifted objects in detail. The James Webb Telescope will change that. I spoke to John C. Maffer, the lead project scientist at the NASA Goddard Space Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, about the capabilities that the James Webb will have. So the James Webb Telescope will be optimized for infrared wavelengths, uh, ranging from uh, red visible light out to much longer, to uh, extend our reach back towards the beginning of the universe, uh, to see the first stars and galaxies forming, uh, to see inside the dust clouds where stars are being born today, and even to uh, understand something about the uh, the possibilities of life existing on other planets. There were things that were just past where the Hubble telescope can see. And so uh, something bigger and more powerful is clearly needed to really understand what we're seeing. The telescope will be equipped with four different instruments from different space centers across the globe. The near-infrared camera will be able to take images from the spectral range covering the edge of the visible to the near-infrared and will be accompanied by a near-infrared spectrograph. There will also be a mid-infrared instrument, which combines a camera and a spectrometer, with a spectral range from 5 to 27 micrometers. The final instrument is the Fine Guidance Sensor, or FGS, which will be used to stabilise the observatory's line of sight during science operations. The uh, flight instruments are already uh, being finished in Europe. Uh, The mid-infrared and the uh, near-infrared spectrograph are both just about done and are in their test programs. The mirrors that uh, make up the telescope are all going to be finished by next summer. The telescope's mirror will be the largest ever used in space, dwarfing the one currently used in Hubble. Made up of 18 hexagonal segments, the mirror will have a total diameter of 6.5 metres, compared to Hubble's 2.4 metre primary mirror. It will be so large, in fact, that it will need to be unfolded when in space. The James Webb Telescope mirror is so large that it will not even fit into the rocket the way that it's to be used. Then after it's launched, it will unfold. So that the telescope mirror will be uh, put back into place. It's made out of 18 little hexagons, uh, and they'll all be adjusted to the right place after launch. The segments are all made of beryllium, which is uh, element number four in the periodic table. We chose it because it's uh, possible to make uh, mirrors that keep their shape when they cool down. It's difficult to work this material. It's, uh, It's hard and it's metallic, but it's been mastered, so now we can just do it. We can polish up the mirrors to the right shape. Because the James Webb mirror will be made up of 18 segments, there will be gaps where the segments are connected together, creating areas where some light will not be reflected, meaning that this information will be lost. But there is a solution to this problem. We actually do expect to lose a tiny amount of light because the mirror segments don't quite exactly touch each other. Uh, But there's very little that's lost in that way. So uh, when you look at a bright star, you see something called a diffraction spikes and it makes the star look like a point with uh, two crossed lines on it. Our mirror has a hexagonal symmetry, so there'll be three crossed lines on the images of a star, but it's not a problem. Um, we know what that is. So uh, most of the big telescopes on the ground today are made with hexagonal mirror segments, and so we know how that works. The telescope will be protected from the sun by a massive sun shield, which, like the mirrors, will unfold once the satellite has been launched. It will then travel to the second Lagrange point of the Earth-Sun system, a position in space that allows for the telescope to remain at the same distance from the Earth, despite having a larger orbit around the Sun. Well, it's actually on the boundary point between orbiting the Earth and orbiting the Sun. This is called a Lagrange point, L2, and it goes around uh, the Sun with the Earth. So it orbits the Sun and the Earth once a year. So it's about a a million miles from here. Uh, It takes a little more fuel to get there, Uh, But after you get there, it hardly takes anything to stay there. The point of it, actually, for us is that the telescope can get cold all by itself. We need a big umbrella, a sun shield, to keep the sun off. And then the telescope cools off down to a very low temperature, so it's uh, perfect for infrared astronomy. It will take about two months for the telescope to travel the million miles up to the Lagrange point. And in this time, the telescope will cool down to the operating temperature. The James Webb Space Telescope, when launched, will greatly increase our ability to look at the early universe, allowing us to step further back in time. Undoubtedly, it will answer many of the questions that Hubble has been unable to do so, but like its predecessor, I suspect the James Webb will once again leave us with yet more questions once it has taken those first few images, with answers that are tantalisingly close but just out of reach.
That was NASA's John Mather speaking to Louise Ogden. Now, we've just got time for a couple more questions. So, Carolyn, could you answer this one from Paul Young for us? He said, if scientists measure the age of the universe by observing galaxies or objects that they can see, then how can they be sure of the age of the universe if there are, theoretically, other things that we can't and will never see? I love the idea of ever being sure of anything in astronomy, let alone the age of the universe. Well, okay, there are different ways of getting the age of the universe. I mean, it doesn't just rest on the galaxies, though I'll come back to that. I mean, it's worth reminding everyone that there's plenty of evidence from looking at radioactive dating of inclusions within meteorites, which are supposed to be fairly pristine and primitive material from the formation of our solar system, that aged the solar system to 4.6 billion years. And then also some of the oldest known stars, halo stars of our galaxy, you can do isotope measurements of things like thorium and uranium compared to iron. And these are elements or other isotopes that have a half-life of 14 billion years or four and a half billion years. And you can use these to age some of these stars And you find it's of the order of 12 million years. And if you allow at least a billion years for the first generations of stars to go on supernova and synthesize the elements that have then decayed, you're looking at timescales of 13 billion years. So not just individual stars, also globular clusters, groups of thousands of stars that are all thought to have formed at the same time with a range of masses. The observed properties of their stars, such as their brightness and their colour, are related to the luminosity and temperature of the stars, which all depend on the mass of the star. And the lifetime of a star also depends on its mass. So if you just look at one of these globular clusters, work out what mass of stars are still burning, you can work out their lifetime and again get the an age limit to the globular clusters, which come out around 12 billion years. So this puts a a lower limit to the edge of the universe because surely it can't be younger than the components inside it. And then go back to the original question. How do we know really what's going on in the whole universe if we can't see all of it? Well, you have to work with what you can see. And certainly out of all the material we can see and detect and observe, we can't possibly sample all of it. But you try and sample as large a number of objects as you can with a variety of properties and over a large a redshift and thus age of the universe as you can. So then we go back to using the expansion of the universe from the observed properties of the galaxies as a way of estimating and measuring the age of the universe. And you can do this by looking at how far the galaxies are away from you, how fast they were moving when that light left them. And you have cause to take into account dark energy, which suggests the galaxies sped up since the light departed. It's further away than you might expect. You can calculate all of this for the observed properties, the observed galaxies, for as large a sample as you can. You're still going to have to extrapolate the behaviour. You're still going to have to extend the flow pattern, both past in time to where we can't observe and outwards to areas we can't observe. And it could be that physics is going to throw some surprises, but I think we've got it fairly well nailed down now. We can observe enough of the universe that we can date the age of the universe to 13.7 billion years. But that doesn't stop us extending this to much further out as we can. So it's it's an ongoing process of refinement, getting more data, sampling more of the universe, and forever pushing that age limit as as best we can. But it seems that, by and large, however we ask the question, we're getting the same answer. We're certainly getting consistent answers, which wasn't always the case, I must add. But at least now it does seem to settle down that when you look at the constituents of the universe, they do at least seem to be younger than our presumed age of the universe from the expansion. Thank you, Carolyn. And finally, Andrew, Martin Fennell says that he's been reading about space-time and relativity with his 11-year-old son, and one thing in particular has him stumped. He's wondering about what happens to space-time in a situation where light itself gets slowed down. So, for example, when light goes through glass or through some water, it travels a bit slower. Is space-time warped in that situation, or is something else going on? Well, the short answer is no, space-time is not warped. And in fact, what's going on here is that there are different ways to apparently slow down light, but actually the speed of light is, is always fixed. This relates in particular to two different ways to apparently slow down light. And the, the first one would be to, to warp space. You imagine you, you have a piece of paper, 
uh, and you you crumple up the middle. If you didn't know the middle was crumpled up, you'd think the piece of paper was shorter than it actually is. Um, and since light carries on travelling at the same speed, say, through the paper in, in, in this example, um, it would take longer to get from one end of the paper uh, to the other end of the paper than you would think if you didn't realise that the paper was, was crumpled up. So uh, when space-time is warped, uh, light can appear to, to take longer to, to get places and, and therefore seems to be travelling slower, but actually it's travelling at the same speed if you really understand the, the way that the space is warped. So that's the, the first way to apparently slow down light. And then there's this second way to apparently slow down light, which is to send it through what we call a, a refractive substance, something like glass or water. And what actually happens there is quite different. The light is continually absorbed and then re-emitted by a cloud of electrons which surrounds all the atoms in those substances. And so there is an apparent slowdown which actually comes from a tiny time delay each time the light is absorbed and then re-emitted. So when the light is actually travelling, it's going at that fixed speed of light, but uh, overall it, its progress gets impeded. So these two methods to apparently slow down light are, are unrelated. They're just different ways to get this effect. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you for your question, Martin. That's actually all we have for this month's Naked Astronomy. We'll be back next month with more news, interviews and your questions. So if you've got anything you want to put to the team, get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. And don't forget to send in your suggestions for what we should put in Fact Impact. If you'd like to subscribe to the Naked Astronomy podcast, search for us on iTunes or join us at thenakedscientist.com slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, from The Naked Scientists and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from its 800th anniversary team and the Science and Technology Facilities Council. 